Genesis chapter 20, if you're using the church Bible, we are on page 14, not very hard to find, you should get there quickly, Genesis 20, and we are looking at verses 1 down through chapter 21, verse 7, Genesis 20, verse 1 to chapter 21, verse 7, and as always, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. We are um, still looking at that section of Genesis in which God is revealing to us his important truths about Abraham. And so this morning we are looking and we are at the, we are at the uh, precipice of God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, that initial fulfillment in the birth of Isaac, who we know is a type of Christ, the greater son of Abraham, who descended from both Abraham and Isaac. And so we are looking this morning at Genesis 20, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And now as we are, uh, we are pushing hard through the life of Abraham, Moses writes, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? She herself said, He is my brother, and the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my, indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you were vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac which in Hebrew means laughter. 
And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh at me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, many of you are no doubt familiar with that great uh, saying in John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, be killing sin lest sin be killing you. That is one of those famous statements in Owen's book about indwelling sin and our need to put sin to death. And yet there is, a, there is, in my mind, there are so many wonderful statements in that book. And as I read through that a few years ago for the second or third time, as I was reading back through Owen's uh, Mortification of Sin, I came across a statement I thought was very profound. Owen says that uh, those who are eager for holiness, those who are eager to follow the Lord and to live out a Christian life, need not ever get to a point where they are above falling into any given sin. And Owen says something along these lines, don't think that you're so holy because you haven't committed some particular sin. It might just be and probably is that you haven't had the opportunity to fall into that particular sin. And that if you were pre- presented with the right circumstances and the right opportunity, you, you, w- you could and would potentially fall into any sin that God might allow you to fall into. Now, I think that that's helpful because as we look at the life of Abraham, as we have been going through the narrative about the life of Abraham, one of the things that we have seen is that Abraham, while he is a man of great faith, a man who has given up everything to follow the Lord, a man who is living in tents, who even at the beginning of chapter 20 is still sojourning, who is still moving around not knowing where God is taking him, he is a man of enormous faith. He is called the father of those who have faith in the scriptures. And yet he is a man of enormous weakness. Back in chapter 12, at the initial call of Abraham, you'll remember that God had sent a famine. And that's, that famine had tempted Abraham to go south. Abraham had a, love, he had a love relationship with the south. And he went south and he went into Egypt And it was there that he lied about Sarah being his wife and said that she was his sister. And now here at the point of the fulfillment, 30 years later, at the point of the fulfillment, we find Abraham falling into the exact same sin that he fell into when he was initially called by God. As Abraham now at the brink of fulfillment 30 years later finds himself finds himself committing the exact same sin and and you wonder how in the world. And, you know, liberal scholars think that this can't be true. Liberal scholars who are so full of self-righteousness say there's no way that this is true, that, that Abraham would commit the exact same sin that he committed here. One of my favorite theologians said, oh no, but the reality is if you commit one sin, you are all the more likely to continue committing it. We see that with Abraham. We see the weakness of Abraham. We see the faltering of Abraham. We see the failing of Abraham. And yet in the midst of that faltering and that failing, we see God continuing to be faithful to his covenant promises. Now, that is instructive to us. You know, at any point when we start to think that we are better than other Christians, that we do things better than other Christians, that we have labored um, better than other Christians, we're in a very dangerous place. I think that God has strategically given us portions of scripture like Genesis chapter 20 to remind us that every one of us has an Achilles heel 
and every one of us has great sinful weakness, and every one of us has great failings and a mixture of unbelief in our lives. And I want to say this this morning, if it could be true of the greatest man of faith who walked on the earth, it is certainly true of you, and it is certainly true of me. And so this morning, we're going to look here at, again, the failings of Abraham, and then we're going to see the fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham's failing of unbelief and God's fulfilling of his covenant promises. We'll notice that we are told there at the beginning of chapter 20 that Abraham now, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you almost wonder, Abraham's going south. Again, he has this love affection with the south. He is moving to the southernmost part of Israel, what would later become Philistia, the Philistines who became the great enemies of Israel. Abraham is moving into what would later become the land of Philistia. He is moving south, and what he is really doing is he is moving away from Sodom and Gomorrah. God has poured out his judgment on a people who have hardened their heart in pride and selfishness and presumption and sexual immorality and every kind of self-pleasing desire and affection. God has poured his judgment out. God has delivered Lot. The last time we saw Abraham, Abraham is being shown to be the friend of God, the one who is pleading with God that he would suspend his judgment. And yet Abraham has seen God act in perfect holiness and righteousness. And now Abraham is moving, and it's almost humorous, he is moving as far away from the place of God's judgment as possible. You almost wonder, because we're not told that God said, now Abraham, get up and go to the land of Gerar. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Abraham, get up and go back to the Negev. He has sent his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're left with the sense that Abraham has perhaps said to his wife, we need to get as far away from this place as we can possibly get. And so he goes to the southernmost part. He goes down south, and he goes all the way down south, and he goes knowing that there are dangers ahead. Notice that Moses tells us, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, we see that Abraham is acting in unbelief. He's not just acting in fear. You know, it is, it is hugely instructive for us to get this. I mean... God has appeared to Abraham so many times. He has given him so many promises. He has given him so many privileges. He has given him so many deliverances. He has shown Abraham that he is doing everything to fulfill his promises that he gave to Abraham. Abraham has the greatest assurances from God. He has the covenant sign of circumcision. God has cut the covenant. He has walked between the pieces to show Abraham how, how, how absolutely sure his promises were that God himself vouchsafed to be cut apart in judgment if indeed he did not fulfill his promises to bless the nations through Abraham's seed. He has promises that the nations, the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham. He has shown Abraham how he protected Abraham in Egypt when Abraham gave Sarah off to Pharaoh and he brought Abraham out. He sent plagues on Egypt. He brought him out. He gave him possessions. He has shown Abraham how he has protected him when Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen had strife and Lot chose by the the look of his eyes and the best watered plains and Abraham trusted the Lord and God continued to provide and God delivered Abraham from that great victory over the king uh, Shedeleomer and 
every step of the way, God is delivering and providing for and protecting Abraham. And it reminds us that back in chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Those were the, that was the substance of God's promise to Abraham, that I will be your protector. I will be your provider. I will be your satisfaction. I will be your reward, that nothing less than Almighty God would do for Abraham by God's grace. And yet for all of that, for all of that, and there's more. If we went through every single instance that we've looked at, there is more. For all of that, Abraham still falters at this moment in unbelief. Now, when we read this, the first thing we ought to say is, how foolish I am. How foolish I am. How many times the Lord has delivered me. He's delivered me out of the world. He's delivered me from a particular sin. He's restored me from a heart that's been hard. He's restored my desire to worship him. He's restored my desire to witness to him. He's restored my marriage. He's restored broken relationships with other believers. He has delivered me and protected me and provided for me, even in the midst of trial and difficulty. And yet how many times we turn back to some particular sin, how many times we wax and wane in faith and unbelief. No, I was struck as I prepared this. That is the normal course of the Christian life, and that should be so grievous to us, that the normal course of the Christian life is the waxing and the waning of our faith when God has given us everything to assure us that he has chosen us by his grace, he has redeemed us by his grace, he has promised to bring us to glory by his grace, he has promised to give us above and beyond all that we could ask or think by his grace, He has has knit us together in a community of believers by his grace. There is nothing that we lack. Even the poorest of believers in the world, God has made rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. And yet for all of that, our hearts wax and wane. I was thinking as I prepared this um, about the early days of my own conversion. And maybe you had this experience where... The Lord is so near and, and his spirit is so powerfully at work in you that you look at other believers and you think, why are they so complacent? And then the years go by and the sin accumulates and the waxing and the waning happens. And we wonder, why am I so complacent? Why, why am I not what I once was? I think when we look at Abraham, we get a very real picture of the difficulties of the Christian life, the reality of indwelling sin, the struggles of believers. You know, very interesting, the majority of Abraham's struggles happen in his own family. Isn't that interesting? The very first struggle he has is to break from his father's household. Then he has the struggle with Lot when their herds grow, his own nephew. Then he has the struggle with Sarah who gives over Hagar, his handmaiden, in his household to him and bears to him Ishmael. Then he has... At every point, then he has a struggle of delivering his nephew out of Sodom. And, and then he has the struggle with his own wife of lying about her being his sister and her being on board with him and handing her over to other men twice. I thought that, that hit me this week. I thought that's something I've never thought about. The majority of Abraham's struggles were not with the unbelieving world around him. They were with his own heart and in his own home. 
And I think that's pretty typical for us. I think if we're honest, it's pretty typical to say that the majority of the struggles I have in seeking to walk as a man or a woman of God and live out a life of faith are not happening out there. They're happening in here, and they're happening among those that God has knit us most closely together with. And that means that we can deal honestly and we can say, you know, where I need God's grace the most is at this moment in whatever situation I find myself in with my loved ones, where I need God's grace to run the smoothest and the most deeply in my life is right where I am living day in and day out among those that he has most closely joined me together with. And, and I think God is teaching us as we look at Abraham's relation to Sarah and the struggles that he's having and his failures. He is failing to lead his wife. He is failing to protect his wife. He is failing. And if, if I fail to lead my family well once, I am most certainly sure to fail to lead my family well again and again and again and again. You know, I almost... I almost There are times, especially in the Reformed Church, where I hear those who are most serious about family worship in the home, and we we must be serious about family worship in the home. Um, We are doing, we are failing our wife and children if we are not. Um, But I sometimes think when I hear those that seem to set themselves up as the model of that, I think there's something that they're not telling me about what's going on in the home. When I, hear, when I hear men seem to speak as if their family is almost without fault, I think there is, there, I am not getting full disclosure. Because I look at a man like Abraham, great as he was, and I see the multitudes of failings in Abraham, the multitudes of falterings and stumblings in Abraham. And I know that it's a norm for believers to struggle and to stumble and to fall. Abraham was essentially saying that his personal safety was more important than his obedience. Abraham was essentially acting in human wisdom. What, what, what fueled Abraham's failure and faltering here is that Abraham was again trying to take matters into his own hands. He was thinking, well, I, I've heard that people die when they go down to Gerar. I've heard that people die just as Lot said, if I stay in this little city of Zoar, they're going to kill us. I know that there's dangers. I know that there is barbarism in the earth. I know that my life will be in danger. Abraham is forgetting that God has said, I will be your shield. And he is instead acting in human wisdom. And he is saying, okay, if I go here, that's probably going to happen. I care more about my safety than my own obedience to God. I will hand my wife over again. That seemed to work the first time. And by the way, I want to say this this morning. The reason we go back to particular sins over and over and over and over and over again is because they seem to work. What do you mean they work? Well, they seem to meet whatever need we're trying to get met at that moment. The reason the man goes back to pornography over and over and over again The reason the couple goes back to arguing violently over and over and over again is because it seems to work. It seems to fit whatever need you personally and selfishly have. That's that's the nature of our sin. Abraham is thinking of his own safety. He's not even thinking of the safety of his wife. It's remarkable. The woman that God just said, 
Next year, she's going to have Isaac. I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to do everything that I told you 30 years ago I was going to do. Instead of believing that God was going to protect Sarah, Abraham takes things into his own hands. Abraham calls, cares about his own safety. Abraham decides it worked before. It worked 25 years ago. It's going to work again. Remember, when he devised the plan, very interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. When he devised the plan originally, back when God called him and they went down to Egypt, he said to, to Sarah, essentially, and, and we read this here, if you love me, do this for me. Tell everybody wherever we go that you're my sister. I mean, think about that. Think about the nature of, he, he loved his wife so little at that moment that he actually turned, if you really loved me, Sarah, you would do this. You would meet my selfish need for safety, and it would be an indefinite, enduring contract between us that wherever we go, this is going to work. You do this. I'll be safe. Hooray for me. Boo for you. I'm not loving you as I ought. I'm not, by the way, I'm not overplaying this. Abraham did not care for his wife at all at that moment to be willing to hand her over to another man. There's no way you can spin that and say, well, she might have lived and be better for her to be another man's wife. He did not love his wife. He was acting in human wisdom and selfishness and pride and a desire for safety. Abraham so acted in foolish human wisdom about those around him. He determined that he was righteous and that those around him were not. He thought, he thought to himself, I mean, Abraham is, is consumed with himself. Isn't that interesting? Even when he goes and tells Abimelech why he did what he did, he said, well, I I didn't think there was anybody that feared God here. Well, Abraham wasn't fearing God, was he? Abraham was deluded and thinking whatever he was doing was right, that whatever was going on outside couldn't be right, and that whatever he needed to do, he would do because it was expedient to his own safety. Now, I believe that we do that We do that in so many ways in our lives that we're not even cognizant of when we're doing it. Isn't that the interesting thing about this? That Abraham had done this particular sin before. God had sent plagues on the king of Egypt. God had shown his disapproval. God had brought Abraham and Sarah out, thus saying, what you did is wrong. I will be your protector. Abraham does it again, and he's not even recognizing that he's doing the very thing he did back at the beginning, and that God was displeased with that, and the consequences of that. He is so consumed. You know, there is a, there's a world of instruction for us here that, and maybe you've had these conversations with others. I don't know if anybody's ever, I'm going to say sinned against you because when we do it, we don't recognize it. Someone sinned against you or someone else. And I don't know if you ever had a conversation with somebody and said, do you think they even know what they're doing? I don't know if you ever had that conversation. Do you think so-and-so even knows what they're doing when they're doing this? They seem oblivious to what they're doing. That's the nature of sin. Sin blinds us. It, 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 when, we, when we allow our sinful desires to get in the driver's seat instead of the Lord Jesus and God's promises and God's word and and walking by faith, we don't even realize who's driving the car. Abraham here is acting in that selfish desire for protection. He is, um, he is giving in 
to what worked before. We'll notice that as Abraham's fall affects not only him, it affects Sarah, it also affects the entirety of the people of Gerar. Notice that the Lord comes to Abimelech in a dream, verse 3, and he says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, because she is a man's wife. Now, before I talk about Abraham's sin affecting his wife, Abimelech, Abimelech's wives, children, maidservants, everyone in his house, everyone in that land. I want to I want to make a point because if you're if you're one of those intelligent types, you should be saying right now, wait a minute. Why is God telling Abimelech he's a dead man? Why is he not telling Abraham he's a dead man? So if you're reading this, you should you should be asking, Abraham is sinning again. And God is threatening Abimelech. That doesn't make sense. I want to say this morning that the, the overarching point of Genesis chapter 20, and is not a license for sin, is that even when God's people are, are faltering in unbelief, God has promised to bless his people by his grace. Abraham is actually going to come out of this with more possessions. That doesn't make sense. God's grace doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense why Abraham would hand his wife over to another man and come out with more than what he had before, except that God had promised to bless Abraham. God had promised to bless Abraham by grace. The point of Genesis 20 is that even when we sin, Yes, we displease our Father in heaven. Yes, we lack joy. Yes, we suffer consequences for our sin. But on the tail end, there is no way in the world that any true child of God can ever outsin the grace of God. Essentially, uh, Genesis 20 is saying what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. That's God is emphasizing that his promises and his mercy and his grace are so free and that they are so unmerited and that they are so undeserved that even in the midst of the sin of one of his own precious children, he is still continuing to bless Abraham. No, I I don't know. I'll be honest with you. One of the struggles I have is that I often think when there's some particular sin in my life or I've done something wrong that I deserve greater punishment because I know what I deserve for my sin. And, and oftentimes there's not greater punishment and then there's greater blessing. And I struggle with that. Internally, I struggle with that. I went to, uh, I went to the president of my seminary once and I said, you know, things are going really good. This was years ago. Things are going really good at New Covenant. And I'm just wondering when the bottom's going to fall out. And, and he said, you're being superstitious and you need to stop. You need to enjoy whatever measure of God's blessing he is giving you at this moment. I think Genesis 20, God is saying that even in the midst of the sins of his people, and, and I, I don't want you to leave this place thinking, oh, great. I don't need to change. God's been gracious to me. That would be the wrong response. The right response would be, I am worse than Abraham. I need to watch and guard my heart because if I do one sin and it works, I'm bound to do it over and over and over again. And I need to be zealous to put sin to death. Nevertheless, the life that I live is a life of grace, is a life under the grace of God. 
is a life of one who doesn't deserve that grace, and yet nevertheless God has promised to bless because of what his son Jesus Christ has done for me in his death and resurrection. Essentially, Abraham is receiving the blessings that his greater son Jesus would merit for him. That's how, how can Abraham come out of Gerar with more possessions and more of God's tangible blessing because Jesus would take Abraham's sin on himself. Jesus would take the sin of Abraham handing his wife over to another man on himself at the cross. The eternal son of God would in time take that sin on himself so that God is teaching us that when he promises to be gracious to his people, he will be gracious to those to whom he promises. Now, God deals severely with Abimelech, and, and it almost seems unfair on the surface. You almost wonder, well, Abimelech didn't do anything. I mean, he was deceived. Abraham deceived him. Sarah deceived him. He didn't actually go in and, and know Sarah in any intimate sort of way. He had done nothing wrong. God comes, plagues his household with barrenness and perhaps other illness, and God says, you're a dead man because you've taken one of my own servant's wives to yourself. Abimelech pleads his cause, pleads his innocence, God says, well, I'll tell Abraham to pray for you, and that plague will be lifted. Abraham does that. The plague is lifted. And yet we're left asking the question, why? Well, I think the very simple and straightforward answer is that God is so serious about protecting his people, especially those that he has put in special office. Abraham is a prophet. He's a minister of righteousness. We see this again, don't we, with Moses. We see when Nadab and Abihu... I'm sorry, when uh, Dathan and Abiathar grumble against Moses, the earth swallows them up. When Moses' own brother and sister say, you've taken too much on you, you, you've got too much control and power, God strikes her with leprosy for seven days. You see here God plaguing those that would hurt, those that by his grace he has set apart for a special function in a special way. That means we ought to be very slow to speak ill of any of God's people, and especially of any he has put in special places. I'll tell you, there have been times where I have spoken ill of other brothers in the ministry, and it has struck my conscience. My conscience has been struck with the severity of speaking ill especially of someone God has put in gospel ministry in the office here of Abraham being the head of the covenant and the, the, the father of the old covenant church in a sense, the, the representation of what God would do by his grace in the lives of believers. And so we see that even in Abraham's faltering, there is lesson after lesson after lesson for us. The big lesson that we learn is that we are to learn to depend on the Lord. Abraham is not depending on the God of grace. He is inclined to put his confidence in human plans and wisdoms, and that is something that we are inclined to. That is something that we are incessantly inclined to. And so we need to step back, and we need to learn from this, and we need to say, you know, my sin is not only unnecessary, my sin stems from me wanting to take into my own hands the way of safety, satisfaction, provision. I want to make sure that things work out the way that they need to work out in my own lives. My sin has consequences on those around me, especially for those within the same house in which God has placed me. And my sin has consequences for those even against whom I might be sinning. We see that with Abraham and Abimelech. You see the the far-reaching nature of his fall here. Now, secondly, we see the fulfillment of God's promise. 
It's very interesting that Genesis 20 and 21, 1 through 7 are juxtaposed the way they are. You are meant to read these together. Um, These are not isolated events. God is essentially wanting us to see that everything that's going to happen in chapter 21, 1 through 7 follows hard on the heels of what he's teaching Abraham in 20. God is essentially preparing Abraham and Sarah to see the fulfillment of his promises. God is also preparing Abraham to be able to offer up his son Isaac. Everything that's failing in chapter 20 is God preparing Abraham for the fulfillment of his promises and for what things God will call Abraham unto in the future. Abraham will be able to offer up Isaac not many years from when he falls here because God is teaching him to depend on his promises and teaching him to depend on him. And so you see that the next thing that we read, not only does Abraham come out with great possessions, with Sarah untouched, with thousands of people of silver, with God's blessing on Abimelech's household. Abraham returns blessing even as he's brought chastisement. Now notice in chapter 21, verse 1, that Moses says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now I love that because essentially everything Genesis 20 and 21 are teaching us is that Abraham is going to have to trust God to fulfill his promises apart from anything Abraham does. That's the hard lesson for us to learn. Am I going to trust God to do what he alone can do, what he has promised to do, and what I will contribute nothing to? That's essentially what God is teaching Abraham. By allowing him to fall back into that old sin, he is saying, Abraham, I will fulfill according to my word what I have said without your help, because, notice verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. There's this great, um, there's this great verse, I believe it's in Genesis, where it says that not one word, it's also in Judges, I'm sorry, in Joshua, not one word that the Lord had spoken failed to come to pass as he had spoken. Not one word that the Lord has spoken will ever fail to come to pass. There's something very comforting in that for me, that I can go to the scriptures. I can have my faith bolstered and built up in the scriptures. I have my mind renewed in the scriptures. I, I, am, I am sanctified by the scripture. But that there's a confidence that we gain when we read the Bible that everything God has said is absolutely true and that the Lord will do and has done all that he's spoken. You know, when we come to the gospel records, there's, there's a parallel. Sarah here is about to have the son that God promised at the, at the old age of 90, the impossible. The God of, of the impossible is going to do what is absolutely impossible. Sarah knows it's impossible. Abraham knows it's impossible. And there's a parallel. When you read Genesis 21, 1 through 7, your mind ought to inevitably race to the birth narrative of Jesus. How in the world can a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man have a child? How in the world can a virgin conceive and bear a son without having known a man? God God is teaching Abraham that Redemption is singularly his work. 
and that all that he does will only be done because he has promised and that he will fulfill everything that he has ever said and that in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, in the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father, in the intercession of the Lord Jesus, the mediation of him, both from when he sits at the right hand of the Father till he comes again in glory and power, everything God has said will come to pass. God is everywhere intimating along the way, even in the face of our unfaithfulness. There's this verse in Timothy that that really bothers commentators. They don't know what to do with it. Half of them tell you what I'm about to tell you, and I think they're right because I'm going to tell you that's what I think. And half of them wrestle with it. And it it says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful He cannot deny himself. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, the commentators I disagree with say that means when you're faithless, God's going to be faithful and he's going to judge you. Because he has to judge all faithlessness and sin. And the commentators I agree with see it written in the context of the church and understand that what God is saying is that even when we falter... Even when we fail, like Simon Peter, who denied Jesus at the point of Jesus' sufferings, who, who, who fell into that man-fearing and couldn't profess that he was a follower of the Savior at that moment, that crucial moment, that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to his covenant promises. He will not deny himself. He will bring to pass for us, in Christ, what he has said. I take great comfort in that. Because the converse... The converse is, God's promises are dependent on how hard you work and how little you falter. That sounds like a bad deal to me. It sounds like a bad, it doesn't sound like good news to me to say God has promised he's going to redeem you, he's going to bring you to glory, but it's up to you, so you better not falter. Instead, even when we happen to falter in sin and are grieved by our sin, he remains faithful He will do what he has said. Notice this. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. That's the great anchor for the soul of God's people. You have an anchor for your soul, the writer of Hebrews says. That in the midst of all the trialities and difficulties, stumblings, failings, even in your own home, where the majority of your stumblings happen, God has said, my son, my daughter, I've given you an anchor for your soul. I have fulfilled my promises in Jesus Christ. I have atoned for your sins. I have redeemed you to myself. I am going to fulfill what I said. I'm going to bring you to glory. I'm going to have you forever with me, eternal life in the presence of Christ, forever and ever and ever, to have that that unending joy, that ever-increasing ecstasy, that great experience of being in the presence of the Lamb of God for all of eternity. I am going to do that for you. And the believer latches on to Jesus And in latching on to Jesus, he latches on to the certainty of God's promises. And then you know what happens? We're not told this in Genesis 21. We're told it in Hebrews. And we're told it in Romans 4. In Romans 4, we're told that Abraham at 100 and Sarah at 90 were strengthened in faith to believe the God of promise and to receive strength to conceive a child. 
So somewhere between Genesis 20, verse 13, and Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah, together in faith, trusted the Lord again, trusted his promises again, turned back to the Lord, knew that he was the God who would do what he had promised, and they, they by faith, Paul says in Romans 4, received strength to conceive in their old age, knowing that he who called them was, was faithful and would do what he promised. Um, Eric Alexander, I have, to, I have to point this out. You know, what's so interesting about Exodus 21, I'm sorry, Genesis 21, is that this happens 30 years after Abraham is called. That's a long time of waiting, 30 years. 30 years till God fulfills this promise with that initial fulfillment. And, um, and he falters at the beginning and he falters at the end, but he waits and he keeps turning back to the Lord over those 30 years. And, and Eric Alexander says, God's best is so good that it's worth waiting 30 years for you to have. Waiting time is never wasting time when it's God's time and it's God for whom you are waiting upon. I love that. 30 years of waiting was worth it. The world wants... I want it now. Happy life, quick. We interviewed a guy this last week for ministry. I'm on the candidates committee of our Presbyterian. And uh, this guy, as he was giving his testimony of how he had come to know Christ, he said, I had seen so many people around me die and wreck their lives that the philosophy I had personally imbibed was live hard, live quick, live to the full because you're going to die soon. It's what Paul says. It's the world's philosophy. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And the believer's philosophy is wait on the Lord, be strengthened in faith, trust him, trust his promises, return to him when you falter, know that he's faithful even when you fail, go back to him. The whole of the Christian life is returning. Returning back to the God who has promised. Uh, Isaiah says, whoever believes will not act hastily. True believers are going to say, you know, I need to marinate in the promises of God. I need to marinate in the word of God. I need to let God's word constantly do its work in me, constantly renew me, constantly restore me, constantly bind up those thoughts that we don't want in our minds, constantly turn me from seeking self and enabling me to wait on the God who is promised, who is faithful, even when we are faithless. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have many times, like Abraham, been faithless. We have many times faltered. We acknowledge our sin before you, Lord. We are grieved that we have many times turned back to those sins that we have known in the past and old sins that have resurfaced in our lives. We have many times been selfish and self-seeking and interested in our own safety and security and not interested in your promises or your kingdom or your glory or your, your satisfaction of our souls. And so, our Father, we pray that you would take these things we've heard and that you would press them deep within our minds and hearts, that you would give us the faith to believe them, that you would make us a people who flee to the Lord Jesus as an anchor for the soul, who is sure and steadfast, who has gone through the veil into the presence of God for us. Father, we pray 
that you would renew us and restore us and strengthen us in faith, that we, like Abraham and Sarah, might continue walking in dependence on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.